This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As we continue our focus on how police officers and sheriff's deputies handle suspects, a ProPublica investigation out today uncovers disturbing details about the death of a man in custody in a Riverside County jail. ProPublica says it learned through surveillance video and documents the Riverside County jail staff failed to address Philip Garcia's urgent medical and mental health needs. It also found staff used violent force against him, then lied about it in reports, as Carter Evans reports. Garcia died less than two days after his arrest in 2017. Our mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics. It's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, for me, Forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. This week on the show, we interview Juanita E. Manns, also known to her followers as Jem. She's a USC law-educated lawyer and deputy public defender, writer, performer, and podcaster who believes storytelling has the power to change the world. Jem has been with the Riverside County Public Defender's Office for over 13 years. She specializes in representing mentally ill clients who are incompetent to stand trial. 
She's taken numerous cases to trial on a mental health defense and is now running a diversion program for IST clients. Jem is also a creative nonfiction writer who has two books, a YA novel and memoir about her YA and high school dropout year entitled Tales of an Inland Empire Girl, as well as a hybrid chapter book titled Portrait of a Deputy Public Defender or How I Became a Punk Rock Lawyer on the horrors of mass incarceration and the intersection with punk rock. Check out her video podcast, Life of Jem, on Facebook, where she does live interviews with writers. Find her on Twitter at Life of Jem, on Instagram, Life of Jem One. We will also include links to her blog and her books in our show notes this week. We are more than excited to have her on the show. I can't tell you personally how much this means to me to have another grown-up punk work in this community, but this is a great interview. Your call to action this week is look into your public defender's office. Make sure they're getting the funding they need. Call your local rep if you need to. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Juanita E. Mance. I go by Jem or Juanita. I'm a deputy public defender in Riverside, California. I've been doing that about 13 years now. I was a corporate lawyer for seven years before that. I went to USC Law School, but I'm also a high school dropout and uh, worked my way through GED, junior college. Mom was a waitress, is still here. Dad was a truck driver, he's passed. I work specifically in incompetency which is a very specialized field where we deal with clients that are incompetent to stand trial. So I handle everything from a petty theft to murder on these mental health issues. And it's a hybrid practice. We do calendar, meaning we um, handle about 100 clients each. And those clients are at the state hospital, but we also do trials on these issues. Typically the most serious cases like murders will litigate the competency on those clients. And I also wrote a book called How to Be a, a Portrait of a Deputy Public Defender, How I Became a Punk Rock Lawyer. And it's about the intersection between punk rock and public defense and blue collar life. And I use writings by Angela Davis, Sheree Moraga, to try to show the intersection between this and how I got here, right? And why being a high school dropout ended up being my magic wand. Well, so this is, you're the first interviewee other than an actual live group today, Suave and I have ever done together because I'm in Philadelphia for the first time in over a decade. So we're really glad to have you here. I think one of the most interesting things to me personally is sort of you going from trying to fight within the system, which you're still doing as a PD, but to changing your perspective about how you look at the prison system as a whole. And as you know about Suave and I, we're not, we don't fall into one category. If I'm against tough sentences, I'm against them for everybody, not just the people I do like, you know? So talk a little bit about your transformation because you've lived a life. I mean, you know, I'm an old punk kid too, and we've talked about this, but you've been sort of on that edge the whole time. I'm an old hip hop kid. <laughs> oh yeah. And it's punk and hip hop. It's pretty much the same thing as far as politically, right? It is, and you know, I I have people in my family that have been incarcerated, I've been to jail, I've stolen, I've picked up a case when I was a teenager and pretty much got off scot-free. But you know, the thing is, I used to be a reformer. I started off as a public defender from corporate law and I was like, wow, I was like hardcore, like going after these people, fighting at trial, winning, and then 
I saw that I wasn't really getting anywhere when I had a client go to prison for five years for stealing a pair of shoes and a bag of chips and he had borderline IQ and I was like trials you can really get hurt like in your soul by participating in this so I started transitioning into mental health and I was still a reformer I wanted diversion for clients I wanted mental health court now I'm an abolitionist and the reason is COVID opened my eyes it really did I don't have my armor anymore I come out of court and I go home and I throw up because I really see my clients more than I've ever seen and they're all children of God right (laughs) for lack of a better term yeah Yeah, and I see their families, and I've always seen them. It's always been hard for me, but because of COVID and because of George Floyd, all of that, I really made a conscious decision to change my practice and to speak out and to not accept the status quo because this system has not only programmed judges and district attorneys, it's programmed public defenders in some ways. And I really want to go against that stereotype. And I work with some of the best lawyers. There are lawyers at my office that work 70 hours a week and that have gotten cancer. There are lawyers at my office that work so hard, you would not believe it. Are there a couple bad apples? In any profession there is. But I would say the majority of people in Riverside, at least, public defender's office in LA, the ones Mm -hmm. I know, we're great lawyers. We care. You don't do this job for the paycheck. If I was a corporate lawyer, I'd be making half a million dollars to a million dollars at this point, not what I made my first year out of law school. Right. Yeah. Right. I do it because I love the clients. Yeah, that's amazing. So let's let's delve in a little bit more to your upbringing and how you landed in punk. I mean, there's that people show up in that in that community like hip hop because they're disenfranchised or marginalized in some way. So just give us a little bit more, drill down a little more on that part of your background because I, I found it to be really interesting. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a very chaotic household. My mom and dad struggled a lot financially, but there was also a lot of violence and uh, dysfunction in our family. And me and my two sisters, we were kind of a little tribe and we just ran ragged around the neighborhood causing trouble and ruckus. But in punk and punk music and dark wave music, I found this and literature, they're kind of the same to me. I found a place where I could go with that, with that dysfunction and it could mean something, right? And then I was a goody two shoes for a little bit in high school, a gate kid and all that, but then I found my tribe with the punk community, and that's when I kind of went downhill, quit the swim team, dropped out of high school, drinking every night. Not all punkers drink, you know, they're straight edgers, but the ones in the Inland Empire, oh no, we partied like every well, night. Let's let's talk about the Inland Empire, because you, you are, uh, you're, you're a public defender in Riverside County, and it's a pretty interesting demographic in terms of the state of California even. Talk a little bit about sort of the the level of socioeconomic, the people you represent, because it's, it's you know, it's definitely there's a lot of very rich people in the Inland Empire, but there's also, especially in Riverside, incredibly poor people, and especially, you know, brown people. I mean, just being honest. Oh, yeah, the intersection between economics and race, it's obvious, yeah. right? And we know it. Every single one of my clients is below poor. They're indigent, right? And the thing about the Inland Empire in Riverside County specifically is it's very conservative as well. So you have conservative judges for the most part that are lording over these poor people of color for the most part and poor white folk that are mostly mentally ill as well or have trauma or addiction in their backgrounds, right? The real problem is is we've created an incarcerated class that's below lower class, that's below blue collar. It's people that are incarcerated because they cannot afford to bail out. 
doesn't matter what their charges are. I have clients in custody on misdemeanors. I have clients in custody for vandalism, a property crime. I have a client that was incarcerated for two years for breaking the billboard on a Carl's Jr. menu that two years later has not been fixed. Yeah. This is not the definition of insanity. I don't know what is. It's disgusting. It's a genocide. And, you know, there's days I'm like, I should just quit because even participating, I'm perpetuating this. And people later will look back historically and say, because we pled people as early as five, six years ago to prison for 0.5 grams of meth and for weed. And now the law's changed. And all of a sudden, everyone's fine with it being a misdemeanor. It was always a misdemeanor. It was never a big crime. But district attorneys and prosecutors are lemmings. They lead our clients off the cliffs over and over. They do not care. They will charge whatever they can. Yeah. They work hand in hand with cops to incarcerate people. I mean, let's say it like it is. I'm not militant. I'm just telling the truth. This is how it is. Yeah. Well, um, that's why they that's why they can speak to this. So that that's his experience with the district attorney in Philadelphia. You know, he had an ADA here that was dirty. I mean, why don't you why don't you tell a little bit about again? My name is Suave Gonzalez. My experience with the DA in Philadelphia was fucked up because at the age seventeen, I got into a fist fight with another juvenile, and somebody turned around, pulled a gun out, and shot that individual. I was arrested and charged with murder, and the district attorney, Roger King, I put his name out, hid the police statement that identified another person as the shooter. That person was, ne- that statement was never revealed in court. That statement was never given to my attorney. That statement was hidden for 30 something years. So a reporter doing my podcast, Discovery, like, hold up, say that again? So a police officer volunteered to read the statement for us. Like, yeah, we identify somebody else as a shooter. Have that statement would have been produced at court, I probably would have never gone to jail for 31 and a half years. So I know how dirty and crook some of these DAs could get. You know, but what I'm interested in knowing is this. As an abolitionist, public defenders, how much did you have invested in the system? And what I mean by that is, how much are you for the defense? And how much are you for the system? Because I can just imagine that as a chief public defender, you come across cases where you be where you be like, this mother mm, is guilty. Do you still defend it? Or do you say, you know what? I'ma fight it because I am who I am. I'm interested to know that position. You know, what position you take with somebody that you know did it come in front of you and you are an abolitionist? Because I, oh, I believe, I believe in fair. I believe in justice. I believe that we cannot just say we're going to abolish all prisons because I, I see you ready to come. I, I want you to respond because I've been in prison for 31 years and I've seen some people that I do not want living next door to me, next door to Kevin, next door to my grandmother, or next door to nobody I know, right? And at the same time, I want fairness, you know? And I always say this, that we as advocates always screaming about, you're giving out these harsh sentences, right? To minority people. But when a cop get to shoot and murder 
a black or brown man, we want that cop to rot in jail. Ain't that a contradiction for, for an advocate? Speak on that a little bit, please. It is. What do you do with people that are violent? What do you do about violent crime? What do you do about severely mentally ill people that are violent? Where do you put them? When I say an abolitionist, what I mean is I think we need to start over with a different kind of system. You cannot get rid of the police per se. There has to be some accountability for people, of course. But right now, this system is so broken, and I can defend anyone. Everyone has a right to a trial and a right to a great attorney and a right to a good defense. And if they have a mental health defense, they have a right to that too. And if they're incompetent, that is the worst thing that can happen is an incompetent man go to trial other than someone go to prison that's innocent, is an incompetent person go to trial with their attorney and they have no idea what's going on. That hurts us, it hurts the system, it hurts the judge, it hurts the DA. It's like that movie Clemency that where they talk about the death penalty and everyone that participates in it yeah. is harmed in their soul. So I agree with you, we can't get rid of everything, right? We have to have some kind of accountability. But where do you put severely mentally ill people that are violent? You have to put them in a safe place. I mean, my my intersection is mental health. So, and you know, the statistics show that at least 50% of all people in the criminal justice system have a severe mental health issue or trauma or some, or a dual diagnosis with addiction or intellectual disability. So a lot of my clients have IQs below 70 and the DAs want to send them to prison. And you know what happens to an intellectually disabled person in prison? They get killed or they get victimized. Each year in the United States, 2 million people with serious mental illnesses are admitted to jails, many of whom also have drug and alcohol use problems. In fact, across the nation, more individuals with mental illnesses are in jails than in psychiatric hospitals. People dealing with this problem every day agree the current approach doesn't improve public safety. It stresses already strained budgets and people who could be helped are suffering. Some counties and communities aren't waiting for help. They're training criminal justice professionals to identify mental illness and respond appropriately. They're designing programs that redirect individuals to treatment. And if those individuals are already in jail, connecting them to services to help break the cycle of rearrests. The Stepping Up initiative nurtures these efforts to create meaningful change across the nation. It unites state and local leaders, criminal justice and behavioral health professionals, and people living with mental illnesses behind a common goal to safely keep individuals with mental illnesses out of jail and on the path to recovery. Join the initiative today and learn how you can make a difference. I went to prison. I had an IQ for 56. 56. You know, some of the speech signs are even faster than I was, right? But I say this, that the criminal justice system in America don't give a damn about that kind of stuff, period. It forced up on us to really bring these issues to the light. It falls on people like you to bring these issues to light because I do not believe that a mentally ill person belong in the penitentiary. They belong in the institution where they can get the help that they that, you know, whatever help they should receive. And my journey in the prison system, I ran across a bunch of people that I could tell you like these people don't belong in jail. And the only reason they're in jail is because they're mentally ill and the jail has done a number on them by putting them on medication that they don't even know where they at. But they don't even know where they at. You know, so again, it falls on us. And I just want to be clear with, with my 
fellow advocates out there that when we say we want justice, it should be justice for all and not justice just for blacks and not justice just for Hispanics. You know, and we got we we got to deal with it. When somebody cross that threshold and they become part of the system, then they should be afforded the same opportunities as everybody else. And, and we shouldn't be feeling no type of way about that. The cop that killed George Floyd. You know, people, oh, he only got 22 years. I understand. We understand uh, what comes with it. But at the same time, he is now part of that system that you are against of. Right. So he don't he deserve the same things that you advocated for for your loved ones? And I know I'm going to get a lot of people saying, well, no, he killed somebody. Well, guess what? I know plenty of people that look like me that killed somebody. You know, so what I'm saying to my fellow advocates is, you know, watch what you say sometimes. Because you cannot tell me I want justice for my people, but I want them dirty cops to rot in jail. It's a contradiction that I'm not buying. You know, I so think- I'm glad you on the show because to have a public defender speak on these issues, it's like we can't get them in Philly. So we have to go to California and get one. You know, well, and- I'm a deputy public defender. I'm boots on the ground. I'm not in management, nor do I want to be. I'm not a supervisor, nor do I want to be. I want to be able to amplify my voice and my clients' voices and my clients' stories for that reason. I'm, I could never be a judge. I could never incarcerate someone. Not that judges are bad because they do that. It's just something I can't do. I can't do death penalty work. I can't. And I think that um, there are a lot of people invested in the system as is in the status quo, unfortunately. Um, And no one will talk about that because it's not politically correct to say that, oh, you know, we all have jobs because of this horrific system that we work in. But I don't know if I want to do this job anymore. I'm going to try to do it 10 more years for the clients. We're building a state hospital system in Riverside and I'm boots on the ground on that, the person that's going to be running it. I'm not the manager. I am the person that will be dealing with all the clients. And that's how I like it. I got a quick question for you. And don't be afraid to hurt my feelings, right? (laughs) Do you believe that the system that you work for, the system you represent, do you believe that this system that you represent is still practicing and racist taxing when it comes to minority people? Of course. That again, I heard you the first time. (laughs) Yes, I mean, And we all have our biases. But, you know, when I first started, I would be amazed in misdemeanor court when you'd have the DA standing there and you'd have this pretty blonde girl and you'd give her an offer. And then, you know, you'd have this schleppy like Mexican dude walk in and, oh, he's screwed. And if you look in the box, who's incarcerated? And what do the deputies call our clients? Bodies. That's how dehumanized it is in the system. The deputies have had to dehumanize mm. the clients. I've watched a deputy, because I sometimes have to do contact visits inside the jail with my very severe, severe autistic clients that can't meet on a phone or something like that. So we'll be in a room together. And I sometimes have to go in the back and I've seen them have a, a woman in like a gown, like a plastic gown, and they're hosing her down. And their other guys, deputies are watching eating their lunch. And you're like, what is this? How do you, or I've been in court and they've taken a client down and there's attorneys in the audience, mostly DAs, eating their lunch, laughing, talking. They don't even see it. That's how desensitized and programmed we have all become. And I have to admit, before COVID, um, I'd been doing it almost 12 years at that point. 
I was a little desensitized. I was always one of the ones who felt it the most, but after COVID, I'm like, ooh, I see this. I see it 100% now. This shit is friggin' racist. It is genocide. And we have to speak out. And if that means I can't be a public defender, that's okay, because I can go do something else. I'm educated, I'm privileged, I know that. I'm just a witness. I'm not part of the system in the sense that I'm not incarcerated, but I have family members that are. So. so how does it work at your office? I mean, you know, give us a little, what do the supervisors say about your stance on some of this stuff? I'm just curious. What do they, they know? Have, they haven't read my book, but they have been very supportive of the writings I have done for uh-huh. the Riverside lawyer that are pretty militant. I've done a mass incarceration class on abolition with two very good public defenders that are now consultants for the DA's office in LA, Alyssa Blair and Tiffany Townen. And that, but I don't, but see people, my friend told me this and he said, it doesn't matter. People really don't read. So you can write whatever you want, right? Actually, true, true. Well, so you, actually have the, the powers that be have to actually open up the book, right? And we'll say, <laughs> I, but I have to say, I've never been uh, censored at my office. I mean, it's funny that you say that, that people don't read, especially the power they be, but they love putting their two cents into my life. They love having a say so on how my life should be. But yet, they never read nothing about my life. They never read nothing about nobody's life. They, they don't read, but they love putting their mother, they love putting their two cents in the conversation. And I'll say to that. Your story means a lot to you, Swathi. I mean, I've listened to the podcast with Mariana Hossa uh, twice, and it drew, it drew me in like a good book. And the best podcasts do that. They're like a novel. And uh, I think that your story is very important because people make these assumptions as they're listening in. And then at the end, you get blown away, right? How could this happen? It happens right. all the time. But you know what? Thank you for that. At least I know one person that listens to my podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, but death by incarceration is like the opposite of the Swabby podcast. Because if you heard the whole Swabby podcast, I always said we want to give a voice to the voiceless. This is what we don't. This is what the voice looked like. It looked like Kevin McCracken and Swabby Gonzalez. We bringing it and we need people like you to not be afraid and say, you know what? I work for the system. I know what the system do. I hear the conversations in the back room, you know, that these people have about us, the people that look like me and you, right? The people that don't fit with the status quo. We know what them conversations are like, but a lot of people are not willing to come out publicly and say, you know what? I know that shit go on because I work there. How people are not willing to do that? And until we get more people like you to speak out the truth, we're always gonna have injustice in the system. We're always gonna have it, you know, because you can either be aggressive with it, you can do it the way you doing it, with a smile, but firm. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Yeah, you know, I have to say with the DAs on a day-to-day level, I try to humanize my clients in their eyes. I try to tell my clients stories to them and it has worked occasionally. 
I, I, I had a miracle happen. A DA submitted on an incompetency that was a very serious attempt murder case with an autistic client. And I cried like a baby because I was like, I did it. I visualized it. I begged. I got almost got down on my knees and begged. I was like, please, please do the right thing. Let me give you this. Here, talk to the family. They're in favor of him being in a state hospital. Please. I mean, it was six months of begging. And she finally gave then she changed her mind after and it was too late. But, you know, she did the right thing. And I, I have this theory that there's good people on the prosecution side. They just feel that they can't do what they know is right for whatever right. reason. In their soul, they should know what's right, mm -hmm. but they don't know what's right anymore because they've been programmed, right, to not look at a client, to not see a person. That is a, someone's daughter, someone's son, someone's mother, someone's child, every single person. Yeah. And I, you know, I think the other thing that did it is over COVID, um, we got video visits from home and I started meeting with my clients at six in the morning every day. And I got to know my clients a lot better. I met with them more often. I met with more of them on a, on a one-on-one -on -one in my literal office bedroom, you know? Actually, let's and, talk about that really quickly because it brings up a really good point. How much of a caseload do you have at any given time? Like how many clients are you trying to work with to get either, you know, plead out or get a trial, get ready for trial or, you know, whatever it is. Like how many are you generally working on at any given time? Well, I'm a referral court. So when an attorney declares a doubt, they go to no. my department and then it okay. gets assigned one of three 1368 attorneys. I have anywhere from 80 to 100 clients at any given time at different stages of proceedings. Huh. Over the last... Um, seven or eight years doing incompetency, I've probably taken out 20 to 30 very serious incompetency trials. The DAs fight the most serious cases, the murders, the attempt murders. Mm -hmm. They want those clients um, competent because they know that incompetency can have consequences with the civil commitment. Right. And so I have a very high caseload, but I'm very efficient. I've been doing this a long time. So for me, I work about 50 hours a week, but I start usually at six in the morning. I try to end at four. I try to take a lunch when I can. We're really short staffed in my unit right now because we're down an attorney. So it's kind of wicked right now. But mm -hmm. I know this too shall pass. You know, I, I've, I've had times where it's not this bad. Right now in incompetency law, they've done the studies in California and the number of people that are severely mentally ill and incompetent has gone up 30% yeah. in the last two to three years. Mental illness is a sensitive issue for many, and as the state's health care system changes to help those in need, one myriad of family is sharing their struggles. Inlet Empire reporter Leticia Juarez has a story. He ended up getting that award. Erica Young's memories of her son Eric's childhood are laid out on her dining room table. From his awards and his books on birds to the Pink Floyd album covers he painted on rocks. Then there are the other memories of his lifelong battle with mental illness. Once he started middle school, that's when everything changed. Everything. By the time Eric was 14, Young says he'd been hospitalized three times on involuntary psychiatric holds. Young says she and Eric's stepfather turned to the school district for help. And after going back and forth, Eric was sent to a locked residential program at a state. At a facility in Texas, Eric was officially diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And for a while, the treatment, support, and medication worked and Eric was able to return home. But after a while, Young says he began to spiral. Then at 18, Eric walked away from treatment and home into what Young describes as a cycle of homelessness, involuntary hospitalizations, 
and incarceration. They're not criminals. It all starts with mental health. My son never said he wanted to be have this mental health issue and start using drugs and end up in the street homeless. So that's why our caseloads are so high. We used to run a caseload of about 50 to 60. And they're all at different stages, so it's not like you're seeing 50, 60 people every day. But I'm yeah. seeing about 80 to 100 clients a month in court. Yeah. I'm not asking this to speak to your ability either. I mean, I think it's more just a question about the system and how how are we providing justice to people if we've got you know, we're down a person in the competency department in Riverside, you know what I mean? And that's just one example across the country. So my next question, because it was a little bit of a lead in is, so you're seeing more people, but how legitimately, if you go, if you have to go to the jail to do your visits, how many people can you even see in one day? What's realistic? Well, via video, you can see about six in the morning and six in the afternoon. Um, At the jail, depending on what jail they're at, Riverside, it's very easy to visit your clients. But if your office is in Riverside to visit Banning, you have to drive an hour and then you meet with them via video anyways. Southwest is about an hour and 15 minutes to two hours with traffic each way. So yeah, most of our clients fortunately are in Riverside because the best mental health is at the Riverside Jail. Right. So um, they're outside and banning. So the okay. video visits have really helped us. And we've been begging for those for a decade. So right. we finally figured out how to do it magically during COVID. I don't Isn't know how incredible? the problem They discovered new technology. <laughs> yeah. But it's bad because you're really wasting government employees time with all this drive time to different jails when we can i want my client in court but i also want to be able to visit them if i need to advise them if i need to tell them something if god forbid something happened to one of their family and i need to advise them of that i mean it's really important once they're at the state hospital we don't visit the clients as much they're in treatment so that's about half my caseload that are people that are currently at the state hospital getting treatment so yeah, I mean, a hundred sounds like a lot, but it's doable. But I'd rather have sixty to seventy would be more of my ability, you know. I mean, my- uh, I I appreciate the video visitations, but I but I also want people to keep in mind that in some states it's a hustle, in some states you have to pay for them video visits, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of states are going to keep the video visit. To keep making that money. The money that they couldn't make in the vending machines because of the COVID, now you won't have to pay for that visit. You know, and this is, yeah. that's just or the telephone calls that are being outlawed and in California. It's yeah. less risky. Yeah. It's less risky because now they don't, according to them, they think, oh, well, if no visitors come in, no contraband come in, which is bullshit because most contraband in any DOC come in through staff. Again, most contraband that come in into the Department of Correction is being brought in by staff, not by visitors. But a lot of states, including Pennsylvania, are keeping the video visitations because now they could cut and they have cut the amount of visiting hours, in-person visiting hours. So if you are from Philadelphia and you live in, 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 in and you house in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right? Nobody is going to drive six to seven hours to go see their loved one for 45 minutes. Nobody's going to do that. How long it took you to get here from, from San Francisco? 
Five and a half hours. Five hours. That's like me going from Philadelphia to San Francisco just to see somebody for an hour and then drive back another five hours. So this is why the DOC is skipping them um, video visitations because now they can say, you know what? You can see your loved ones four or five times a month on a video, but it's going to cost you like $20. Your loved ones can send you some photos, but it's going to cost them like $30 to get a, a, a photo book that the jail got with a vendor that they chose that's giving them a cut for you to see them. So it's a business, people. The same way that prisons are business, everything that's in a prison is business. And that's the way you have to view it. So from that part, I say we need more abolitionists like you to get rid of that shit. We need- What happens when someone doesn't touch their family member? When we had a family member at fire camp up north, we would drive seven hours to go see him for a couple hours. But we got to touch him. We got to eat a steak with him. I'll tell you what happened when when somebody, because I've done seven years in solitary confinement. I can tell you what happened. You become angry, you become bitter, you become desensitized, you know, and I can tell you this from experience. My mother died when I was in prison and I didn't shed one tear, not because I didn't love her, it was because I was desensitized to that anything that was happening in the outside world, including death. It just didn't affect me uh, the way it affect other people. You know, when I came home, I had to deprogram myself from being desensitized and, and allow myself to say, you know what? I feel this, man, I miss my mom. But when I was in prison, I didn't even thought about it. Your mother died and you haven't shared a tear because you're in a fucking hole and you don't want these asshole CEOs or these fucking people to think that you are weak. So you take that pain, you bottle it up and you say, you know what, let's do this. I'm not, even, I'm not gonna let them see me cry because crying in prison it's a sign that you break it. And when somebody detected you break it, you become a victim of the system. And, and, and it's a messed up situation. That's what happened when you don't see your people or when you don't touch another human being. You become desensitized, you become angry. Yeah, and in trial, it's funny, you know, just putting your hand on your client's shoulders, jurors notice that. I've had yeah. them tell me. I saw how much you cared about that when I was in trials years ago and I get too attached. <laughs> I don't do very well with boundaries, but I, I love my clients because, yeah. you know, I, I could have been easily right where they are. I just got very lucky, very lucky. I was blessed for whatever reason, maybe to do this work. I don't know, but you know, I could have easily ended up you know, right where you did Swabby. And I'm so, I, I really appreciate you being so open about what that was like, because that's trauma, you know, and you're ha still having to deal with that, you know? I still haven't dealt completely with the trauma of 31 years of incarceration, but all the stabbings and all the people flying over the tears like they were Superman. And you know, that's trauma that a lot of people don't know. I'm still dealing with it. I still sleep, believe it or not, with my night lights on. I've been home four years, you know, but I slept with lights on so long in the prison that I haven't get rid of sleeping in complete darkness. I'm still feel close and forward. I can't sit in between anything. I got to be by the door, you know, and that's trauma. It may sound like, oh, that's nothing. It's trauma. I still don't trust a lot of people. 
I, I'm still angry that the prison system robbed me from the opportunity of really moaning my mother's death. You angry at that. Every time I think about the prison system, I think about the bad shit that happened in my life. I'm still going through that trauma. Um, I'm dealing with it, I go to therapy, but you know, from time to time, I get into that mode where I'm still in solitary confinement. I don't mind going home and locking myself up in my apartment and say, you know what, I'm gonna be here for a few days. Because to me, I've been locked up so long that I'm used to that. When the pandemic hit, I heard a lot of people tell me, oh, what I'm gonna do? To me, it was like, man, I dealt with lockdown all my life. 31 years, it was nothing. You know, but I'm beginning to understand that if we don't deal with that trauma, if we don't speak up against the system that put people through these traumas, we just as bad as the people that's running the system. So for those who think that, oh, well, well, what I'm gonna do is speak about it. Because the more people that speak about it, the more people that's listening. And it's not just one voice. Now we got two voices. Now we got three voices saying the same thing. You know what they say? If three different people tell you the same story and they don't know each other, there's some truth to it. And you can go to any prison in the United States and ask the citizens in there, have you been traumatized? And you will get the same answer. You get the same answer, yes. You know, so I'm mad that I didn't have you as my lawyer. <laughs> You're gonna make because, me cry. Put on my well, eyeliner. <laughs> because when I went to trial, my lawyer, I went to trial for murder, and I only saw my lawyer for death. The first time I met him, two hours later, we going to trial. Where is the goddamn compassion in that? Where is your duty as a lawyer? At least fake it and say, well, Your Honor, I saw this guy for four or five weeks. Saw my lawyer for one day before trial. Where is the standard of practice with public defenders if that is the standard? That is no standard. That is disgusting. That lawyer needs to, my whole point now is that lawyers need to speak up. There's a case yeah. that came down where a public defender had cancer and he was uh, suspended from the practice of law for inadequate representation. And the court in California said, you needed to speak up to your supervisors that you were overloaded. It's not enough to just try to get by. Us public deputy public defenders on the ground need to speak up when we're overloaded, if our caseloads are too high. And believe me, I speak up. I am a squeaky wheel and I document. But you know, I, they're working on stuff right now in my unit. I have a yeah. great boss. I have a great team. I work with Monica Nguyen. She teaches at UCLA about mental health and cognitive issues. I have a great team. I learned from the best in Riverside, but it's broken too. It's, it ain't no, if you're a good lawyer, you can get by if you're scrappy and you're willing to work hard and I get all the resources because I fight for them. But there's a lot of people that do it for a couple of years and they're like, oh, this is too hard. But it's supposed to be hard because you're fighting for people's fucking lives. This ain't no fucking joke. Don't don't do this shit if you want an easy career. Go be a corporate lawyer. Go be a financial analyst. Go be a teacher. It's easier than what we do. My sister, who's a special ed teacher, said I could not do what you do. Yeah. She can't do it. She's like, it's too traumatizing on you and your clients. Well, but I put boundaries at work. I do. What questions <laughs> do you have to these lazy public defenders, right? That they take these cases just for the money. They they overload themselves for the money, but really don't fight for the client. What message did you have for them? Speak to them. Quit. 
They need to go do something else. The only people that should be doing this job are people that care more than anything, where it hurts you every day to do this job, where you see every client, where you fight for every client, where you tell their story, where you don't give up, and where you fight for bail on every single client. Now, it's not easy to do that. It's not easy. But if you're not one to do it hard as much as you can and do the best job you can, go do something. And there's some bad private lawyers out there too, and very good. Oh, there's plenty. Of, I got a whole list of them that I want to air out later on. <laughs> I got a whole list of them. What? I got a whole list of these high-priced lawyers that take advantage of people in prison. I'm like, I can get you in court and just just keep using the same petition over and over again. And I know plenty of people that's been banned from court because their lawyer had used the same brief, just changed the name and date on a multiple um, cases. And then the court holds the um, um, defendant responsible for what the lawyer did. Like, you're, you're responsible. He used that petition. You should have known. But with that's, that's, I mean, that's a different show. I mean, yeah, the private defense bar to make money has to be cutthroat. So they will let their client's mother mortgage their house. I My husband out said, why don't you go private? I said, because I'd be working for chicken and Diet Coke. I'd be so broke. I'd take on every client for free. <laughs> I cannot make money off of this. I do not want to make money off of it. If I ever win the lottery, I'll do it for free for clients. I mean, this should not be something about finances. This should be a civil right to a good attorney. And yes. you know, that's the reality is a, a private attorney has to be a good businessman. They have to get paid to do it. I've known great private attorneys that went broke. So it, it's a double-edged sword. If, if it's economics and you're, and you're paying someone, I always tell my clients, go with your public defender and if that doesn't work, get a good referral. Don't just right. get someone out of the damn phone book because that shit is not gonna work. Well, one of the other things that we've seen over the last however many years, you know, since basically Jim Crow, this the system isn't set up to give people a trial in front of their peers it's now set up to punish people if they take it to trial like oh we're offering we're dangling this deal if you take us if you go through and and follow up with your constitutional rights we're gonna punish you literally to death in trial by giving you a term of years that is going to keep you in the penitentiary until the day you die and how did we get here? And what do we, what can we do? I mean, I swear, like, I'm, I'm thinking like, let's get a little like revolt going and go into county jails and tell everybody that's waiting to get a plea bargain to say, no, take it to trial and just break the system. You know? It would be a system. 99% yeah. of cases plead. And the thing is that it's not only that they hold a gun to your head to plead, to go to prelim, there's a pre-preliminary hearing offer yeah. that goes away when you institute your right to a preliminary hearing, which is just a mini trial where the prosecutor has to show they even have enough, a scintilla of evidence to hold it over. How are they allowed to do that? How are they allowed to take away your offer and say, if you go to prelim, your offer's gonna double? What yeah. do you think people, if I had a choice, or they take probation, right? Probation, right. so you can be supervised by a probation officer and pee in a cup and not be able to leave your county or state and be on someone's radar, that that ain't no prize either. Let's talk about how many people are supervised. Let's not just talk about incarceration. Let's talk about how many people are being supervised in this system. Millions and millions. It's you millions know anyone being supervised? Swabber? No, 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 no. I think that, <laughs> I, I think that in the state of Pennsylvania, I thought I was the only former juvenile life as being supervised, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, that um, 
we are on lifetime parole and we had to pay supervision fees and they went up from ten dollars twenty dollars to thirty dollars it's like they keep going up and i'm a little rebellious so i haven't paid my shit <laughs> for almost a year i keep getting these letters like you gotta buy you gotta pay you know and i'm like i ain't got it i ain't got it because i just feel like i gave y'all 31 and a half years and 85 days you still want my money like for what for what you know and i think that this is an issue that attorneys should take back to the united states supreme court if it's unconstitutional to keep a juvenile in prison for life it should be unconstitutional to keep that same person on papers for life what's the difference because parole is just another form of incarceration. You know, if exactly. your parole, if your parole man don't get laid tonight, he could come tomorrow to your house and say, give me your right ankle. I'm putting an ankle monitor on you because I don't want you to go outside. I mean, it did happen to you, right? In your podcast, you talk about someone made a false accusation against you and you ended up being incarcerated again with no I ended up not only being incarcerated i ended up being incarcerated twice because they put me on house arrest after they let me go from state prison here i am with an ankle monitor for almost a year and you know what i did i went to atlanta city and jumped in the ocean and that shit was i thought my leg was gonna blow up because that shit was just and i didn't give a damn i made them suckers come back to my apartment five times and remove that stuff, you know, because like I said, I'm a little rebellious. So I'm not paying no supervision fees. I'm yeah. really not. And I don't care who it is, what parole, I'm not. When I was resentenced, my judge never said, you gotta pay parole fees for the rest of your life. Some shit the DOC made up, some shit the system made up, right? And until a Supreme Court justice which I don't even trust them, especially the ones now, rude that, oh, it's legal for you to pay them fees. I'm not paying them. And I it's know that I, and I know that's probably gonna get a lot of people, my supporters, like, oh my God, you violated parole. No, I'm not. Because if you read my papers from parole and from the courts, it says nothing about paying fees. Nothing at all. Put it on paper if you want me to pay it so I can take it to court. Put it on paper. They don't want I you taking it on the court. <laughs> so, Jim, tell us what's next for you. You've got you've got a book out. You, I know you're doing a lot more writing. Talk to us about what's happening over the next the next couple weeks, months, years, because you have a lot going on. So we can plug it. We can put you know uh, links up. We can link to your podcast. You know, you got a lot. You have a lot. I mean, you say, "Oh, I work fifty hours a week." No, you don't. <laughs> I right now with writing the podcast and work I work about 80 to 100 yeah and people don't think that's possible but you know Kevin and you know Suave it is because I live and breathe this stuff and I actually enjoy it so much that it's not even really work for me so I have my book uh portrait of a deputy public defender how I became a punk rock lawyer that title is based on a James Joyce portrait of the artist because it's about being true to yourself no matter what, no matter what happens to you, you speak out because what is freedom for, if not for fighting for those who are not free, right? Yeah. That's what, why we are free. That's the definition of freedom is to fight for others. This is an opportunity and a moment for us to think about how we can uh, 
add rehabilitative services in jails. And if we can have more conversations and more cross-training, I think ultimately it would really benefit the individuals who get incarcerated. And then my second book, which I've been working on for 15 years, it's called Tales of an Inland Empire Girl. It's a young adult memoir told in child voice. And it goes from when I'm a little girl to when I drop out of high school. And it's all about talking about how this gay kid, you know, my mom put everything to me, could end up dropping out. And it's trauma, it's mental health, it's giving up, it's sabotaging yourself, but I did okay. And the epilogue is my second and third act. So I think for me, it's all about, I, I was so redeemed, I was so lucky, I was a high school dropout and I ended up at USC Law School. If that is not a miracle, what is, right? And I, my dad passed about 15 years ago, and that's when I started writing. And I think of him, he talks in my ear when I write, and a psychic has said he's over my shoulder watching me when I write. So I know I meant to put this memoir out there because it's all about my dad who owned a bar. He was a total alcoholic drunk, but the best dad, loved him, miss him. And I have my podcast, Life a Gem. Maybe we could do some cross-promotion podcasts. Who knows? Yeah. You know. I love you guys. I, I'm always looking for pro, cross promotion for for our stories, but at the same time, you said you're only going to put in ten more years and then retire. Uh, probably go do something else, like start a. Um, I I really want to start my own facility, maybe a sober living residential rehab, some kind of grant based program for people where you can give someone with the mental health issues somewhere safe to be, where you're not hurting them. Maybe you could join some of the advocates out there in the world, like, like the Lisa Speaks of the world, that's helping people with wrongful convict, who've been wrongly convicted get out of prison. You know, because I think that your voice and your skills could be used in that field. If you retire, you know, like, anybody that's been wrongly convicted would love to have an advocate like you on their team, because you mm -hmm. bring a different kind of skills that we haven't seen out there yet. You know the system. You know what to write in the petitions. You know what to look for. You know what some of these judges want to hear when they read a brief. So, you know, maybe, you know, um, you could join the movement and and who knows? And no, then write another book about it. Yeah. Right, and that's where the magic is. I was so scared to write about law because of the privileges and privacy and fear. And then when I started writing about my job is when the magic happened, which is weird. Yeah. I always resisted it. Oh, I don't want to tell my client's stories. There's too many, you know, there's too many privacy concerns. But, you know, in my book, I just change a lot of details. And I talk to a couple people about how to do that mm -hmm. and about how to keep clients autonomy. I never want to violate. I don't ever want to use a client and be felt like I'm using them for my own benefit. That would break my heart if some a client thought that. So I, I never want to be use this in a way that I'm not honoring them because it's my privilege to represent them. Right. A lot of public defenders don't look at this as a public service career, but this, it is our privilege to do this work, to get paid to do this work. That's a gift, right? I mean, and I make a decent living, you know? I just want to say thanks for coming on. You know, there needs to be a change, not just a change, this whole shit system needs to be ripped down to its studs and rebuilt. So. Exactly. Yeah. And I would say, you know, people need to look at Senate Bill 394 that was just passed into law by Senator Skinner in California about primary caretaker diversion, yep. which focuses on mothers and fathers and what we're doing to children as a result of incarceration. Yeah. It's 
disgusting. Yep. So thank you, for, thank you for having me on, Kevin. You're an inspiration and suave. I'm so glad to meet you. Like you touched my heart, both of you. I mean, hey, thank you. And we hope that you um, could at least consider being a consultant for our show and uh, a, a special commentator because we definitely need your voice. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone, and please, if you can, take action. Media Podcast.